Hey there, welcome to this excellent church. We believe the word of God is the charter of our lives and God's way to reshape values and reconcile men to himself. We hope this message brings edification, exhortation and comfort. Be blessed. So we'll talk about the hand of God. Um, I feel like I rushed last week's Sunday. So I want to crave your indulgence to allow me to preach well today. Hallelujah. At least we're in a festive season, have you? Merry Christmas, everybody. If you're a Christian, don't ever say happy holidays to anybody. Don't say happy holidays to anybody. What's happy holidays? It's Merry Christmas. Jesus was born. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Let's, let's not be unfortunate. Hallelujah. <laughs> happy holidays. Call happy holidays. Name. When Muslims are doing that one, they will say, they will say Barca de Salah. They will also be, that's not what I'm saying. Please don't try it with anybody. Right? Yeah. Praise God. So we'll talk about the hand of God. And um, yes, I feel like I rushed last week Sunday, but um, um, you know, the hand of God in salvation is something that is a very core and central part of Christian doctrine. So it will always come up. Hallelujah. We'll keep talking about it. We'll keep talking about it. So I will, I will not feel too bad. I won't try to recap so much. Um, I will try to recap. We'll talk about it. In fact, it's something we cannot escape, so we'll keep talking about it. Praise God. So today, I want to talk about the hand of God in marriage. We'll talk about providence in marriage, which is the hand of God in marriage. Last week, I started by talking about how that the Bible uses the hand of God as an expression to talk about how God is deliberate and intentional. Listen, I want everybody to listen. This doctrine is very, very important. This doctrine is central to Christianity. There are two doctrines upon which every other doctrine in Christianity revolves. The doctrine of God and this doctrine of providence. In fact, the doctrine of providence is actually a kind of doctrine of God. Hallelujah. It is what the Bible reveals about God that every other doctrine revolves around. Do you understand that? If you miss this, no other doctrine will make sense. You will just be saying things that are not Christian. So it's very, very important and I want you to pay attention. Okay? I want you to pay attention. I want you to pay attention. So I was telling you that the hand of God is an expression that the Bible uses throughout the Old Testament. If you missed last week's Sunday, go and get listen to the message again. The hand of God is an expression that the Bible, the Old Testament, the prophets used to talk about how God is intentional, how God is acting in human affairs. Not only is it the hand, not only is the hand of God powerful, it's also present. Hallelujah. Not only is the hand of God powerful, it's also what? Present. Very important for you to understand this. Because there are those that would in order to try and explain and resolve certain tensions, they would talk about the hand of God as if the hand of God is not present. They would talk about the hand of God as if the hand of God is not present. Sometimes to resolve certain tensions, they will talk about the hand of God as if the hand of God is not powerful. But listen to me. The hand of God, our God, reigns in the affairs of men. Not only is it all-powerful, it's also what? Present. I know you might have heard this said before that um, um, God is not everywhere. God is inside believers. So it is where believers are that God brings hair and all those kinds of things. You are shaking your head. If you have not heard it before, just be thanking your stars. No, no, don't thank your stars. I'm so sorry for that. Please, please remove that part. Thank, thank your God <laughs> that, that, that called you before the foundation of the earth. <laughs> Praise God. Right? So the hand of God is not only present, it's also what's powerful. Don't worry. As we go on, you will understand better. Praise God. 
And so today I want to talk about the hand of God in marriage. But before I go into it, I want to make some other things very clear. I want to reestablish some things about the hand of God, um, the providence of God, the presence of God, how God works in our affairs. Hallelujah. Jeremiah chapter 19. Jeremiah chapter 19. Jeremiah chapter 19. I want to crave your indulgence ahead. I'm going to use the word mystery a lot. So if I sound like an apostle with small a, don't be alarmed. No one very funny thing. So <laughs> during the week, during the week I was having a conversation, I was just you know, talking to people and reviewing the message and what I said and everything. And you know, they were encouraging me that I should not be afraid of using historical Christian words and everything. And it got me thinking throughout the week. So when I was preparing for service, I now saw a tweet from one of my, my favorite female, um, female Christian philosophers and theologians. She's an Eastern Orthodox um, philosopher. And she was talking about the mystery and mysticism and all that. She talked about how there are mysteries in God and we're not called, we're not called to understand all of it. We're not even called to understand the mysteries. We're called to interact with them. And she wanted to talk about the Eucharist and transubstantiation and everything. I was like, ah. So this mystery word I'm afraid of. The real Christians are using it. Praise God. Yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah. You guys didn't get what I just said. Now, don't worry, you still get it. So if I use the word mystery, I'm using it like that. You understand that? I'm not using it like, you know, like apostles are here. Okay, so. But let me say something before I continue. Hmm? Listen. There is no new mystery that one man knows that all of us don't know. Are you hear what I'm saying? The mysteries that the mysteries can never be known. The mysteries that the Bible calls mysteries are not what known. The ones that were to be revealed have been revealed once and for all. The ones that will not be revealed will not be revealed. When you might come and say, I, I show you a mystery, you are not Paul. See, I, I have one, but it's a lie. Anything that any Christian needs to know has been given and shown to us. That's why it's very, very weird. This guy should just better go and join the Catholic Church. All right, because how can you be so that scripture if you believe you're a Protestant? You believe that the Bible is our ultimate authority for God's word. Why will you be coming and be telling people that you have a, you just found a special mystery? You know that? But you want to be Protestant. Better for you to go and join the Orthodox people. All right? And understand, letting Mary pray for you because you're there. Hallelujah. Because if we are solar scriptura, if we believe that God has revealed himself in his word, and his word is our ultimate authority, then there's no mystery again. This thing has been democratized. One and general that believers read God's word and you hear everything that is necessary for the Christian life. I love the way the great Protestant professionals put it. The Westminster Bible Confession of Faith says, it says that we believe that the Bible is the ultimate, I'm not, I'm not quoting, I'm paraphrasing, so we believe that the Bible is the ultimate source of God's word and anything that is not written in it should not be required to be believed. <laughs> hey, it suits me. Anything that is not written in it is not required to be what? Believed. So I show you a mystery. Right? So if I, if I use the word mystery, I'm talking about things that are actually mysteries that even me, I don't know, they don't know, nobody knows. All right? Do you understand what I just said now? Uh-huh. If I use the word mystery, I'm using it to mean not that I have a deep I'm using it to mean things I don't know, you don't know, they don't know, nobody knows except our Lord. All right? Jeremiah chapter 19. So I want to show you a mystery. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Go and buy a clay of jar from a potter. Take along some of the elders of the people of the priest and go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom near the entrance of the porch gate. There, proclaim the words I tell you. 
and say, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I am going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears it to tingle. For they have forsaken me and made this place this and made this a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense on it in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the bloodshed of the innocents. So this um, so the people of Judah, the people of Judah, the lower kingdom, um, you know, were offering, they de- departed from God and they were worshipping all these gods. And these gods were nasty gods. They were gods that were making them kill innocent people. That's the thing about all these demonic gods. They like bloodshed, all right? They like ending people's lives. So they were doing a lot of evil, all right? Um, then verse 5 now says, They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal. Something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. Something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. As far as the sovereign Lord can put distance between himself and something, this is as far as God can do. If if as far as God can put himself between, put distance between himself and something, as, as far as God can disavow or distance himself from something, this scripture demonstrates it. God said, it is, it is not from me that these people will worship other gods. It's not from me that these people will worship other gods and they'll be burning their children. He said, I did not command it. I did not mention it. It did not enter my mind. Jeremiah 7, verse 30 to 31. Write it down. Jeremiah 7, verse 30 to 31. The same prophecy was also repeated again. Hallelujah. When James will talk about this concept of what flows from God in terms of good, this way he said it in James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, verse 13. I want to take those scriptures very seriously. James chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Praise God. Do you see that? He said, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own desire and what? Enticed. Then desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Hallelujah. Praise God. You see that? Every good and perfect gift comes from God. If anybody is tempted, they should not come and say that it is God that is tempting them because God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he tempt evil with anyone because God is holy, God is good, God is pure. Evil does not emanate from God. So when Jeremiah tells us, he was speaking, mouthing God's word, right? When God was speaking through Jeremiah, God said, I didn't command it, I didn't mention it, it did not enter my mind. That means evil does not flow from me. That is not to say, when God says I would remember their sin no more, you know, it does not mean that God has amnesia. Do you understand that? When it says no enter my mind, it does not mean that God does not know something. Do you understand? It's to show that the evil of burning your children and worshipping idols did not come from me. But how is this sovereign? This, I, I love this particular verse of scripture that helps to us to understand this. But before I go into that, I want to first establish something. 
Evil does not come from God. Evil does not come from God. Now you will see the mystery, all right? Evil does not come from God. He says, it did not enter my mind. Hallelujah. It did not enter my mind. But look at this beautiful scripture. Genesis chapter 45. I thought and searched and searched. Maybe as I'm growing in God's word and I'm learning more and more, I'll be able to find um, scriptures that better explain what I, you know, this, um, this particular concept. Hallelujah. Genesis chapter 45 from verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer... Con- so this is the story of how after Joseph had um, shown his, um, his brother's small pepe, Hallelujah. I don't think he asked for too much. I mean, just a little pepper for all the shaggy they showed him is, is all right. It's appropriate. I mean, <laughs> so after he first stressed their life, just, just a little bit, he could not take it again. And then verse 1 now says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph, and he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Let me show you a mystery. <laughs> you see, this particular verse is very interesting because Joseph did not say, because you know, sometimes I even say it, and when I say, I want you to understand, that's why I prayed for you that God to expand your mind to be able to understand this thing very well, all right? Because it, so there's a level of intelligence, spiritual intelligence, that the Holy Spirit gives us to understand God's word. And I prayed for you so you understand. Listen, you know, he didn't say, he didn't actually say, you did evil, but God turned it around. But you know I've said it before. And when I say it, I know what I'm saying. But you know he didn't actually say that. He didn't actually say, you did evil, and God turned it around. What he said is that, where's that verse again? He said, God sent me ahead of you. He says, for two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing. Just put your phone on silent now. Don't worry. Don't, just put it on silent. Hallelujah. There will be no plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. He says, so then it was not you who sent me here, but who? He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. I show you a mystery. He said, God sent me. He didn't say, God turned around your evil. You know that voice he said? (laughs) Did you hear what I just said now? He didn't say God turned around your evil. He said God sent me. So that means, and that is the thing. Sometimes, you know, when we are trying to explain this thing, sometimes even when you are trying to explain, you forget how big God is. God is not your meat. He said God sent me ahead of you. So that means that while they were doing the evil, God was using it. Did you see that? He didn't say God turned it around. It's not that God waited for them to act. Before he now said, ah, I'm wiser than you. Even before they were acting, God was using it. Do you see that? But we read it in Jeremiah chapter 19 that evil does not come from him. So the evil came from the wickedness of his brothers. But even before the foundation of the earth, God was using it. 
So that's why the great Protestant, um, um, the great Protestant um, confessions will tell you things like God ordains all things. That's what they mean. That even the evil that people are doing freely, God is using it. He does not do injury to the second causes. He does not do injury to your volition. Every man is blameworthy for their evil. Every man is judge is judgment worthy for their evil. Yet God in his wisdom, and that's why I call it endless creativity. Endless creativity. It's something that we cannot reconcile. It's only him that can reconcile it. That's what we mean by endless creativity. That his brothers were doing evil, but he was sending them. But he was not the one that did the evil. So do you understand what I'm saying now? So that when things are happening in your life, it's not even like as if God was waiting for the evil to happen before he will now react to it and turn it around. Even before it happened, God was in control. While it was happening, God is in what? Control. How can God do this kind of thing? i show you a mystery. <laughs> Hallelujah. Very soon, I guess we're calling me apostle. <laughs> Praise God. Praise Jesus. Because our God is in control. At the hand of our Lord is outstretched. It is powerful and it is outstretched. He reigns in our affairs. He is in control of our affairs. Nothing catches him by surprise. There is nothing that is not within the ambit of his knowledge. He ordains all things and no evil is from him. So our God is truly great. This is what makes him worthy of worship. Church, do you understand this? I need to understand this properly before I proceed. Talk about the hand of God in marriage. I said understanding this has ramifications for all our doctrines as Christians. Hallelujah. This thing has ramifications for all our doctrines as Christians. So we've established now that just like the Lord said, that evil does not come from him. All these evils don't come from him. We also see certain things, and we talked about it last Sunday. We see the Lord clearly telling us that there are some things that are pleasing to him. There are some things that displease him, and there are some things that are pleasing to him. He uses both for his glory. He uses both to bring out good. But some things are pleasing to him, and some things are what? Displeasing to him. We talked about it last Sunday. We talked about a couple of scriptures. I just want to go into something so you can really understand this concept of the things that are pleasing to God and the things that God that tolerates and allows. Hallelujah. You know, when I use the word, so you understand better now. So when I'm using the word allow, that is not to say God is reactionary. It's to give us a word that we can use to explain the things that are displeasing to God. Hallelujah. So we see that some things that are pleasing to God and there are some things that are displeasing to God, right? In the Bible. And yet, God uses all these things for his glory and for his will. Amen? God uses all these things for his glory and for his will. And that's why when we are dealing with God, when we are, you know, as children of God, what we are called to do before every man, God has given us options. And we can either go the way of the things that are pleasing to him or the things that are displeasing to him. Do you understand that? We can either go the way of things that are pleasing to him or things that are what? Displeasing to him. God in his infinite wisdom will not change. Before the foundation of the earth is control of all things, he's using all things. But you have your volition. You can make your choices. And the kind of choices that you make will affect your outcomes. Now, I'm talking about your responsibilities now. Do you understand that? Because even in your outcomes, God is in 
control. So let's, you know, set that aside. Talking to you now. God has set before you this day life and death. He has set before you this day things that are pleasing to him and things that are displeasing to him. You need to make choices. Because the choices you make will have effect on your outcomes in the will of God. The choices you make will have effect on your outcomes in the will of God. There's a very good story that helps to explain this. And notice that what theology, first Samuel chapter 13, what um, philosophy and articulation cannot help to explain, narratives help to explain. Stories help to explain very well. There's a very interesting story here in 1 Samuel chapter 13 from verse 10. So the Philistines, I believe, the Philistines were encamped against the children of Israel and Saul had just become the king, right? He had just become the king, so um, the Philistines were encamped and then according to the, you know, according to the law, they were supposed to offer sacrifices you know, to dedicate and commit, commit everything to the hand of God before they go out into the war. But the Bible is clear that it's the priest that meant to carry out these sacrifices. But Samuel, not me, the one in the Bible, did over Sabi and went to offer the sacrifices presumptuously. And you know, under the law, you don't you, you, you do anyhow you see anyhow. You do anyhow you see anyhow. So verse, verse 10, first Samuel chapter 13, verse 10. Bible tells us that just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that men were scattering, that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now that the Philistines, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offerings. Verse 13. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Now, I don't want us to take the words of the prophets lightly. I want us to take them seriously. Let's not do the thing that this, you know, these are our friends do, whereby you see a scripture, you can see what the Bible says, but because you, you cannot accommodate it based on your own doctrinal preconceptions, you will bend it and break it and enjoy it to make it say what you want it to say. Someone is clear. He says, if you had, I would have established your kingdom over Israel. But later on, we see that before the foundations of the earth, the Lord had prepared, had worked, that our Lord will come through the line of David. Say, <laughs> so God is not my mate. He says, if you had, it was Saul's choice, but God was working it through. Why am I giving this example? So that you don't begin to think in your mind, God is in control. I can do anyhow. You will collect. <laughs> See, he says, Lord, um, verse, verse, where was I? Verse 13. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. You, you, you see, if you read through the, in between the lines, you'll see a lot of interesting things going on here. The guy just messed up. He just disobeyed. And God said, if you had. But in the same sentence, God said, I have chosen. Past tense. <laughs> you did not read it. He says, I have appointed him. 
I've appointed your ruler, but you are the one that messed up. And if you had not messed up, I would have established it. So do you understand what's happening here now? So the Lord gives commands of his pleasing will, things that are pleasing to him. If you disobey, if you disobey his will, even though the Lord is sovereign, you will have a terrible time of it. Are you hearing what I'm saying to you? You will have a terrible time and he will use your terrible time to glorify himself. Did you hear what I just said now? This is the reason why we pray. This is the reason why we study God's word. This is the reason why we don't do all those and God is in control, we don't do anything again. That's why you see Christianity is not like that. God is at work. If you disobey his pleasing will, when he reveals his pleasing will by his hand, and you disobey, you will have a terrible time of it, and he will glorify himself in it. First, I get what I'm saying to you. If you read chapter 15, verse 22 to 26, Saul disobeyed again. And let's read that one. And there's a particular scripture, there's, there's a way um, some prophet Samuel put it. That's very, very interesting. Hallelujah. Verse 22. I still feel like I'm in danger of an echo. Verse 22. But Samuel replied, so the Lord says that, um, that um, Saul was supposed to exact um, judgment on the Amalekites, but he disobeyed because he felt he had a better idea. So the Lord, um, so the Lord, you know, judged him. But Samuel said, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than what? Sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of what? Idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, of the Lord he has rejected you as king. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And because Saul disobeyed, the Lord rejected him as king. See, there are consequences for disobeying God. There are consequences for disobeying God. And if you disobey God, you will find yourself in that displeasing place that God still uses for his glory. I pray for you, that will be your portion in Jesus' name. That's why as I'm, I'm about to go into the message proper now, I want to beg you, Brothers and sisters, when I was preparing for this message, one of the things I was preparing my mind to say, to say was, you know I cannot deceive you. I want you to trust you. You know I cannot deceive you. But then I thought about it. Some people have said that in the past and deceived people. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to say that. What I want to beg you is submit to God's word. I want to show you what God's word says about marriage. Please submit to it. I pray that the Lord will help me to articulate this properly so that you can understand. But I recognize that this matter is particularly a matter of offense for a lot of people. And the work of Satan is to continue to put and sow seeds of offense in our hearts so that we can reject God. So that we can reject the word of God. There are some people that they might not even necessarily reject the God because this morning, I just saw a tweet this morning that someone said, the reason why I rejected Christianity is because I saw all the misogyny inside of, the, of Christianity. You know, you understand that. There are some people that might not even outrightly reject Christianity because of this, they are perceived misogyny in the Bible. There are some times that you, because the word of God has been revealed to you, you cannot deny. You understand that Jesus died and rose again. I cannot deny. But 
you now have an ineffectual Christian work because there's offense in your heart. Do you understand that? You can be offended and have an ineffectual Christian work that, okay, okay, let's just be doing it because that's, you know, understand, there's no other place to go. You know, after Jesus has refused you and told him, come and eat my flesh and come and drink my blood and everybody leaves. But you, you don't leave. And they ask you why you're not going. You say, where else will I go to? <laughs> so Jesus, I don't have a choice. But this matter, ah, okay. I don't want you to have that kind of Christianity. I don't have the kind of Christianity of, but this matter, ah. I don't want you to, thank you, Jerry, my brother. <laughs> I don't want you to have the kind of Christianity where there's something in Christianity that is Causing an issue for you that is, you know, that is, that is there. You still believe the gospel that is there because, see, all of us will get to heaven, but not all of us have the same kind of reward. Some people's works will burn. Some people's works will burn. While some people are getting crowns with stars, some people will be just at the gate. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Praise Jesus. We will not all get the same amount of reward. So that's why this matter we're about to go into now, please, I want you to accept God's word. Because if you accept it, if you accept the pleasing will of God, that which pleases God, if you obey that which pleases God, I promise you, you will understand what I mean when I say that the Christian marriage, the biblical marriage, is the best marriage setup that can ever exist. If you are willing to look at the word of God as the Bible, as the Lord says it, you will understand that the Christian marriage is the best marriage institution that can ever be. Nothing in this world that has ever existed comes close to what the Lord designed. Nothing comes close to what the Lord designed. Church all together. Oh, praise God. I've been trying to hold myself since, but it's very, very interesting that I already planned this message since to talk about marriage, and then my dear brother got married this weekend, and he's in church with us. So it's like I see everything is coming together. Hallelujah. Praise God. We'll talk, about, we'll talk, we'll talk more after service. Praise God. But I have to say, it's very nice to see you guys. Thank you so much for coming. Um, very happy to see you. Hallelujah. We'll talk more after service. Let's continue. Amen. Praise God. So, the hand of God in marriage. The first thing I want to show you is that when the hand of the Lord is, the hand of the Lord has been stretched out and he has shown us what his pleasing will for marriage is. He has shown us what his pleasing will for marriage is, what his intention for marriage is. He has outstretched his hand and he has shown us what his will for marriage is. And I'll put it in two Broadways. Number one, the first thing that he, that he has revealed to us is that his intention for marriage is that two will come together and become one flesh. This simple idea is very, very, it has a lot of ramifications, it has a lot of implications for our entire marriage ethics, our, all the ethics that flow, all the Christian ethics in marriage that flows from, comes from this first revelation that God designed that a man and a woman will come together and they'll become one flesh. Hallelujah. Church, all together. Let's start from the beginning. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. 
Um, let's just jump to um, verse 20. So the man gave names to all the living stock, to livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took off the man's ribs and then closed up with the, closed, closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, he had taken out of the man, and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So this is the beginning. From the beginning when God created Adam and Eve, his design was for them to be one flesh. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. From verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea, to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and for every reason? Haven't you read? He replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his life, his wife, a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus tells us, from the beginning, the Creator made it so. Then they asked, why do we not see it like that in the law and the prophets? Then verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The Christian marriage ethics is that two people will come together and become one flesh. All our thinking, all our sexual ethics as Christians and all these things revolves are based upon this core fact that two, our, our ethics about divorce, our ethics about sex, our ethics about how you relate with your in-laws and all those things, our ethics about how you deal with your finances and all those things, all of these things revolve around the simple fact that God created Adam and Eve to become one flesh. Hallelujah. Church, I was together. Oh. Our sexual ethics comes from this. Fornication is wrong and the bed is defiled because of this fact. The will of God is that two people come together. This is what is pleasing to God. That a man and a woman come together. They will know each other. And in case you don't know what knowing each other means, it means, you understand? They will know each other and no other person will be involved in that equation. So that means no person will be involved in the equation before the joining. And nobody will involved in the occasion after the joining. Church, do you understand that? First Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Do you see that? When a man unites himself with another person sexually, both of them become one flesh. So the plan of God was that that Adam and Eve will come together and they will become one flesh. So Adam is not supposed to come one flesh with Evelyn before he meets Eve. Do you understand that? 
Do you understand what happened here? Uh-huh. Adam is not supposed to come become one flesh with Evelyn before he meets Eve. It's supposed to be Adam and Eve and no other person. Adam is not supposed to give me another sister's name. Cleopatra. Let me, but Adam is not supposed to become one flesh with Cleopatra after he meets Eve. Because it's supposed to be between two people. Because once you come together with one person, you have become one body with the person. And, and, and there's no place for three becoming one flesh. It's two becoming one flesh. Do you understand what I'm telling you now? So that is the reason why fornication is, sin, is, um, is sinful. That's why joining your body to another person that you did not marry is sinful. It's not because Christians' wahala is too much. Do you understand what I'm saying here? It's not because you want to control your sexual life. It's not, who cares? What, what wants you to use your sexual life to do? It is because it is sinful. And whenever we go away from what is pleasing to God, we find ourselves in all kinds of evils. We find ourselves in all kinds of evils. Yes, God in his endless creativity is able to call light to shine out of darkness and turn the evils around. But we can have a terrible time of it. I hear what I'm saying to you. You're not supposed to join your body with anybody that is not your wife or your husband. You are not supposed to. This is the reason why we also know that alphabet agenda is wrong. All our ethics stem from this single fact. It's between one man and a woman, one flesh. So anything apart from this is sinful. So it cannot be between Adam and Steve. It cannot be between Eve and Evelyn. (laughs) And it cannot be between Adam and Eve and Evelyn. That's why polygamy is also wrong. Do you understand what's happening here? All these things revolve around the fact that the Lord has revealed to us what his plan is. It's one man and one woman bound together, giving themselves the privilege of the sexual satisfaction and no other person coming in between them. And that's why the Lord even added, added something else and said, what God has joined together, let no man, no one put asunder. Nothing should come between you. God is not interested in breaking what he has, he does not destroy what he has built. So God is not coming between you. Therefore, even your ministry cannot be an excuse for you to be separated from your wife. Do you understand what I just said now? Your ministry and preaching of the gospel cannot come between you and your wife. It cannot. It cannot. Nothing should come between both of you. Not even your children. Remember when we were growing up, listening to some people who say, um, the essence of your life is ministry. You're about preaching the gospel, ministry, ministry. You're first, you first the pastor before you're married. I don't know how many of you hear that thing growing up. Listen to me. If you're not a good husband, you cannot be a pastor. Do you understand what I just said now? You're a useless husband. You cannot be a pastor. You cannot be a leader in the body of Christ. If you're a useless wife, you cannot be a deaconess in church. You cannot. You cannot. You must prove yourself faithful in, the, in, in your families before you can even handle God's people. Church out together. All our ethics you know, revolve around this single fact that the Lord has designed that two people will come together and become one flesh. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Do not accommodate in your mind 
And I'm going to talk about it, you know, subsequently. How the Lord is at work in us to help us get good partners. And you'll see what the Lord uses to help us get good partners. Part of what the Lord uses, I'm going to elaborate more on it now before going forward. Let me just say it now. Is this. Brothers and sisters, do not accommodate in your mind any picture of marriage that is less than what God has revealed. Do not accommodate in your mind any picture of marriage that is different from what God has revealed. This thing makes all the difference. Let me just control myself. I'll, I'll get there. Hallelujah. The second thing that the Lord has revealed expressly about marriage is that there is a structure. Amen? There is a structure. From the beginning, the Lord in his wisdom chose to create Adam first and then Eve. Both of them were in the mind of God before the foundation of the world began. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, he said, male and female created he them. In Genesis chapter 5, same thing. He said, male and female created he them. But in the logical flow, in the chronological flow, when he was going to create this male and female, he created Adam first and then Eve. Ephesians chapter 5. Brother and sister, I'm not asking you to trust him because I will not mislead you. Because even me myself, God is the one holding me. But I want you to trust God's word. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. In everything, as to the Lord. In everything. Calm down. Relax. Relax. It's not misogyny. It's not sexism. Relax. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound See, the young guys are not reading. This is a profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Listen. There's something that happens. There's something that Satan does. At every point in time, at every point in time, that's why the Bible tells us in the book of 2 Corinthians that, see, part of the work of ministry is casting down every thought and every philosophy that raises itself against the knowledge of Christ and bringing it down in subjection to the knowledge of Christ. At every point in time and in every dispensation, there are always ideas and philosophies that Satan raises up. And when he raises up those philosophies, it clouds the minds of people. And when it clouds the minds of people, um, you know, it prevents them from reading God's word as he is. So God is saying one, but they are hearing two. It's equivalent of what happens on social media sometimes when you say, um, my wife is the most beautiful woman in the world. And someone says, are you saying other women are ugly? 
You are laughing. But you know it happens. That's what happens to us sometimes when we're reading God's word. God says one. You are hearing two minus one. For example, let me give you a very interesting example. When Paul was writing, when the, when the Christians, the first, when the early church, when the apostles wrote about family structure, how Christians should conduct themselves in society, the Romans hated them for it. Because the Romans even believed that Christianity was effeminizing men. A lot of Romans were offended because of it. Because in the Roman culture, in Greek culture, any ancient Near East culture, Assyrians, Babylonians, anybody, the ones that came before, the ones that came after, the Ottomans, the Arabs, and everything, men owned their wives. Tens of thousands of years of human development, difference, biopsychological differences between man, men and women, men being physically stronger than men and all those kinds of things, led to a general universal culture where men owned their wives. All of a sudden, Jesus comes, dies, lays the foundation for certain ways of thinking and tells his apostles to teach us and explain to us very well. These apostles now started saying some funny things. Paul came on the scene and started saying that the woman owns the body of her husband. Just in, in, in the Roman culture, see, if you think I'm lying, please go and study these things. A woman does not own her husband in Roman culture or a Greek culture or any of those cultures. None. The man owns his wife. All of a sudden, he came and said this thing. They thought they were actually pissed. They thought Christianity was a feminizing man. In fact, part of the things that led to all the persecutions under Diocletian and Decius and all those people was that they believed that Christianity was affecting people, that we're becoming too soft and becoming effeminate. Imagine a culture of war where what it means to be a man is to rise up, join the army, follow them to go and kill all the girls and then win land and then you come back. You understand what I'm saying? You pack all the female slaves there, use them for whatever you like, what it means to be a man. All of a sudden they say, you shouldn't do like that. You must keep yourself for only one woman, making men and women equal. They said even that woman, she has choice over your body. You can't be telling her, my friend, lie down. So when they read the Bible, they were offended. When they heard the gospel, many of them were offended in it. In our own age, there's one man that the Satan used. His name is Karl Marx. Came and taught a nonsense philosophy. A terrible human being by every standard. A personally terrible human being by any standard. Brought about a philosophy and people took it, taught taught it in schools and everything, and now it has evolved. They've changed the words, but basically we still have something called cultural Marxism now. And that thing has affected our generation so much that we look at everything in the light of oppressor versus oppressed. Everything. That is not to say that in the real world, so people are not oppressing others. Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> but the problem is that that filter has affected our heart so much, it has distorted our heart so much, that even when the Bible is speaking to us, about what the will of God is for us, what we are seeing is oppressive versus oppressed. That's why the work of the ministry is to cast all these ideas down in subjection to God. When the Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands, when the Bible says the man was treated before the woman, what does he mean? Let me try and explain. You can see the example that the Apostle Paul uses here. He talks about the relationship that Jesus has with the church and says that is how the relationship between a husband and wife should be. Even as I'm speaking now, you might not yet be able to still relate because when you hear sob, anything sob, meat, 
subjugation. Anything sub, it means oppression. So I want to show you what the relationship between Jesus and the church actually looks like. What is the cornerstone of that relationship? When you understand the cornerstone of that relationship, because he was talking to people that were saved, so they understood what he was saying. When you understand what the cornerstone of that relationship is, it, helps, it will also help you to understand what exactly we mean by this relationship between the husband and his wife. 1 John chapter 4. Guys, please allow me to preach today, all right? Praise God. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, from verse 8, says, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So God is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we see the first thing is that God loved us first. God loved us first. Let's go on. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So John is saying something. God loved us first. He now says because of that, the love that God shed upon us is supposed to overflow on us, overflow in our hearts. Like it's not help us to love other people. But he didn't stop there. And that says in verse 13, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. So we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever, li whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete amongst us so that we have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. So when Paul was talking about the relationship between Christ and the church, he was talking practically, and what, based on our roles in the marriage, what our responsibilities towards each other will look like. Sometimes we can forget that, we can disconnect those roles and those responsibilities from the core structure of it. And so in a society where those roles have been, have been you know, abused, where those roles have been abused, where those roles have been remained, it can be difficult for us to see those roles as the apostles and God intended for those roles to be seen. When we go back to the core, the foundation, what is the core of the relationship between Jesus and his church? It's love. Jesus loved us first, and so we love him. Because he loved us, he fixed our hearts and regenerated us, we have the ability to love him back. So the core responsibility, the, the core of the, the relationship between, him, between the God and Jesus and the church, which is the man and the woman, is love. So when Paul was saying, husbands love your wife, wives submit, he was not saying, husbands love your wives, wives don't need to love their husbands, their job is to submit to their husband. That's what he was saying. You understand better now. What, what is happening here is that the core structure of our relationship is love towards one another. 
how that love is demonstrated in the marriage is dependent on the purpose of God for the person that we are loving. Love is to will the good of the person. That means when you look at a person, in your heart you desire, I'm, I'm in danger of echo, please help me. When you look at a person, you love the person. What it means to love that person is that you know what is good for the person. And what is good for that person is based on the purpose of God or the purpose of that person. Do you understand that? <laughs> you cannot say, I love my keyboard and I'm using to sweep the floor. Do you love that keyboard? When you love the keyboard, what will you do? You help it to play better. Do you understand that? <laughs> so, love is dependent on the kind of purpose that the person has. That is the reason why there are certain privileges or there are certain outward shows of the love that you have for a person dependent on the kind of role or responsibility that the person has in your life. That is the way that you will love your brothers and sisters, your biological siblings. It's not the way you love your husband and your wife. Part of the purpose of your wife or the responsibilities that, your wife, that you have towards your wife is to um, give her um, sexual satisfaction because it is with your wife that you are procreating or with your husband that you are procreating. So, if you want to love your wife, of course, part of loving your wife is giving your body to your spouse, isn't it? But you cannot give your spouse to your biological siblings, except you are mad. You should not give your spouse, your, your body, to your friends or your colleagues in the office. So, do you understand what I'm saying to you? What you want for a person is what determines how you demonstrate love towards that person. If you have two younger siblings, if you have two younger siblings, or not younger, let's just say you have two people, you want to help them. One of them is very enterprising, is hardworking, is very busy, what he has, what his own problem is that he doesn't have capital. And you have money. When you want to love that kind of person, how will you love him? You give him money to start business. If there's one standing beside him, that this one is lazy, he does not want to work, he does not want to do anything, and he has gambling addiction. How do you love that one? Is it by giving him money? But how do you love him? By flogging his life. <laughs> is it not the same love? How is it demonstrated? Based on the need of the person. Because the person's situation or the person's role in your life is what determines how that love is manifested. That is what informs the specific instructions for husbands and wives in the Christian family. The core is love. The manifestation based on rule is love and submission. This is what I mean. That's what the writer of Hebrews was talking about in Hebrews 13 verse 17. Open, open Hebrews 13 verse 17. Hebrews 13 verse 17. <clears throat> it says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be what? A joy, not a burden, for they would have, for that will be of no benefit to you. When we're talking about the family unit, this is what we are talking about. The reason why the Bible says, wife, submit to your husband, is not because he's asking you to be subjugated to another man. It's not because he's saying that you're inferior to another man. What he's just saying is this. In the family unit, God sovereignly elected one between two equals. Is that would be the person that he will call to give account. When they messed up in the Garden of Eden, who did he call? Did he call both of them? 
Who did he call first? That's what it means. If God is going to ask your families for somebody to give account, he will not call both of you. He will call one person first. Loving that person, loving that person is to help the person do the thing that God will judge him for. That is why you submit to him. Submission is, I'm allowing you to do the thing that God has called you to do. If God is going to hold you to account, it means that the decisions we are going to make, God will ask you why we made those decisions. Do you understand that now? Submitting to a man is the privilege you are giving to him because you love him as someone that will give account for you. It's not misogyny, it's not sexism. It's not that the man is inferior to, is superior to the woman. I need you to understand this. Submitting to your own husband is you loving him. In fact, that word implies that both of you are equals. The word itself implies that both of you are equal. Because if one was inferior, it's not submission. It's you just doing what you're going to do. Has anybody ever asked, have, has, how many people have dogs and cats in the house? Have any of you ever had to tell your dog, submit to me? Isn't it? In the context of the office and in the hierarchy of the office, do you tell your subordinate, submit to me? Do you have to tell them? Do you? Don't submit. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> yeah? Don't submit. Somebody employed you. You should be begging you to submit. Don't submit. I get what I'm saying to you now. And that's why he now says, husbands, love your wives as love Christ loves the church. God is going to give account for you. The standard by which he's going to ask, he's going to ask you to give accounts. The standard by which he will judge the work that you have done is that the family that he committed into your hands is going to ask you how you managed it. You cannot love people. You cannot properly steward people that you don't love. A sense of superiority already alienates you from the ability to love people. You don't understand this. Listen to me. Every great violence and every dehumanization and every great evil that has happened in this world was based on one man dehumanizing another. As you are a human being, aren't you? If you look at another person as less than you, what are you saying? They are less than what? Human. You cannot love someone that you don't have a common ground with. <laughs> That's why our Lord in his wisdom came and took on flesh so that he can call us brothers and what? So he was truly human. You cannot love your wife if you genuinely believe that you are superior to her. If you think you are better than her, you can never love her. Because your decisions will never be for her good. Your decisions will be based on in your mind, your own projections of what nice and what good is. That's why as a man that will give account for the family, you cannot make a decision for people without knowing what they are thinking, without getting their inputs. God will ask you, how did you manage your wife? The wife said, this is the will of God for me, but you don't know. You are not making decisions that are contrary to the will of God for her. And you are going to fail. How can you give account for someone that you are not listening to? How can you give account for someone that you think you are superior to? How can you love someone that you don't care about? Are you going to you guys? Do you understand what's happening here? Please don't allow... 
Western cultural agenda affects your minds to read God's word contrary to what God is saying. This is the hand of God, and those that submit to it will have the best Christian marriage, will have the best kind of marriage that human beings have ever seen. Brothers, there is no shame in that you are making decisions that are constantly good for your family, even if they were not originally your idea. You are giving accounts. You understand that? Because you think what it means to be head is for your own way to go. No. What it means to be head of your family is to make decisions that are best for the family. So that means if your wife is smarter than you and she's constantly giving better ideas, what will happen? As a Christian man, what does that mean for you? Did you hear what I just said now? It is your decision. You will give accounts. Or you follow what she's saying. Church, you understand what I'm saying to you? This is the Christian marriage. You are making a decision for what is best. That's why there are some conversations that don't factor. My wife is in Lagos. She's earning plenty money more than me. I'm in Ibadan. I'm earning less. We want to make a decision of where to move to. See, I'm the head of the home. Come and meet me in Ibadan. She should leave her job. Now, I'm not saying that necessarily you make decision based on money. You understand? I'm just giving an example that helps you. You know, people, a lot of people have canalized money. That's their problem. I'm just using an example that will help us understand here. So let's just use money as a sample, right? Here. And both of you as a family agree that what is good for your family now is more income. Listen to me. What a Christian man does is what is best for the family. So if that means quitting your job to move to where it's closer for your wife, what does that mean? You do what? Do it. Did you hear what I just said now? The Lord exemplified it. God came in the flesh and washed the feet of filthy human beings. He said, I'm doing this as an example for you. That whoever will be the greatest amongst you must be the servants. Wash each other's feet. They were still talking like carnal human beings. They said, Lord, who's going to be the greatest amongst us? I want to sit down on your right hand and on your left. They said, no, in this kingdom, the greater ones serve. Brothers, listen to me. The red pill guys and the androtate guys will call you a simp for serving your wife. Own it with your chest. Did you hear what I just said now? They say this one is always taking care of his wife. He's simping for his wife. He's your wife, isn't it? Own it with your chest. Own it. Own it. Church, listen. That's why I started by talking about what is things that are pleasing to God. You see these two things I just said, that two will become one flesh and nothing will come in between them. Not sexual sin, not in-laws, not the feelings of your father and mother, not friends, not business, not even ministry. Nothing should come between you. Is ride or die. In sickness and in health. In poverty and in riches. Let me just say it again in case this is the first time you're coming to this church. If you went to a place or you are married or you went to a marriage where they said in richer and richer, in healthier and healthier, they did not marry you. 
<laughs> Both of them are just deceiving themselves. You see those two. <laughs> you say you say richer and richer. When you say in other words, when there's poor, I'm, I'm listening. All those nonsense things. It's one flesh in sickness and in health. If anything happens to me, I will be with you. I will die with you. Sometimes I might see a fine girl outside, a fine boy outside. I will kill my flesh. It's only you. When you become fat and you have pot belly, it's me and you. We'll lose the weight. I met you with six pack, but now you have one. <laughs> Praise God. In six pack and in one pack. One flesh. This is the will of God. And that in the family, the expression of our love towards each other, that the wife trusts her husband to give accounts by submitting to him. And the wife loves his wife by sacrificing himself and giving everything for his wife. Listen to me. This is the hand of God in marriage. If you do this, you have a good marriage. Ah, if you do this, your marriage will be beautiful. I hear what I'm saying to you. And even in when we're making choices of my, let me end on this note. Guys, please allow me to preach, all right? Uh-huh. When Christmas season. Praise God. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Not only has the hand of God revealed his will for us in marriage, I want you to know that we said his powerful hand is also reigning in our face. He didn't give us a will and leave us alone. Find it. He didn't give us a will and say, this is what my plan for marriage is. The same God that called us out of darkness and saved us and is preserving us and keeping us and persevering us in the, same, in the faith so that we don't fall. He's the same one that shows us this will for marriage and his hand is at work in us to find good partners. I hope you believe this. I hope you understand this. I hope you're not like some people that believe that uh, your finances is in your hand, your marriage is in your hand. We are in God's hand. God is at work in your life and he will help you find a good partner. Listen. One of the ways that God's hand holds us is this. And let me just summarize it and we'll show you in the Bible. I know all of us came from certain backgrounds where we're always waiting to hear the voice of God. And I warned you guys before, you shouldn't be hearing voices. Listen to me. I will explain well for you. The primary way, I'm happily married. God knows. I'm not whining you because I'm trying to use myself as example, to make my message sweet. I'm happily married. I did not hear any voice. <laughs> Listen. Let me tell you how this thing happens. Let me start from Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. He now qualifies it. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. How are we able to test it? How are we able to approve it? By renewing our minds. When this is the way to find a good partner, there's no special secret. Stop waiting for voices. Stop waiting for visions. 
When the word of God fills your mind, when you hang out among believers who have good values, Christian values, the word of God saturates your mind and it fills your mind. And it genuinely forms your value system. It renews your mind. It genuinely forms your value system. It forms the principles by which you judge people's character, by which you judge outcomes, by which you judge what is good and what is evil. When God's will or marriage has completely saturated your mind, what happens is that the word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What happens is that that word illuminates your mind. When you are making choices, when people are coming, when God is ordering the steps of people to you, like Adam and Eve, you can tell monkeys from baboons. Because your mind has been what? Illuminated. God bless you, sister. You are in church. Some people are not in church. They are thinking. Do you understand what's happening here? In Psalm 119, verse 105, look at the way David puts it. I love the way David puts it. There's a way the word enters your heart. The word of God, when it enters your heart, it illuminates you. That's why the Lord says in John chapter 11, that so if you stumble in the dark, it's because there's no light inside you. Look at it. Uh, help me. Psalm 109. 119, rather, verse 105. Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 105. He said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my what? You see that? You will not stumble in making your choices. When the word of God has filled your mind, this is what happened to me. I've told you guys the story many times. I was in school. I had done all kinds of rubbish. They have entered relationship. They've broken my heart. They've dealt with me. You understand? I've told you guys the story many times, right? And here, you see, it's providence. Hallelujah. It's the hand of God. And then I just told myself that I'm resting. I'm not going to stress myself again. But the kinds of things that, and thank God for these people, the kinds of values that they had imbibed in our hearts concerning what the right kind of partner is had gotten to a critical point that one night, the way the widow just, just ordered it, we were discussing one night, and the things that she was seeing, the kind of things she was seeing, I was like, ah, hey, hey, oh my God. The kind of things that she was seeing. When I fin- when we finished this thing that night, I just went to go and tell my friends. I just said, I've seen a woman I'm mad. Hmm, it's a Shanda. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> See, I didn't hear any voice. You can recognize good people if the word of God has filled your heart. Many of you are still making choices based on your materialistic background. Maybe your mom suffered too much at the hand of a man. And the man did not take care of her. So she's telling you and indoctrinating you from small. Look for a man that has money. A man that will give you things. A man that will buy things for you. So it has affected your heart. You will not allow God's word renew. Don't be conformed to your mother's worldly ways. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You let that kind of worldly mindset affect the kind of choice you have. You will now see good men. You will not see. God will order good men to your eyes. You will not see. You even, let me tell you something now. Even if God gives you an impression and speaks to your heart that this person is a choice, if you don't have good values, you will still rubbish that relationship. Do you know that? You are, you are materialistic because of your background. You are breaking choices based on the person's current status. And listen to me. The fact that a man is generous does not mean he's a good man. I told you, we fatting pigs and cows for Christmas. <laughs> Any cow that is celebrating, my owner likes me. He's feeding me. He's feeding me. He's feeding me. I'm enjoying. And he's telling his friends, I'm enjoying. He does not know that we are cooking. The fact that the man is buying iPhone for you does not mean he loves you. That's why lust and love can look alike from outside. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
<laughs> Praise God. Listen. Listen. Lost is to desire a person for the usefulness that they have to you. You are using a person for your needs. Whatever will encourage that person to be useful to you, you give the person. Do you understand that? But love is to will the good of a person, whatever is good for them, even if it's not making anything to you. So that's why a man can be lost in after you. What he's doing is that he's cooking you and preparing your mind so that you can give him what he wants. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Same thing too for women and men. The same thing opposite. But all these kinds of things, you, you will not recognize them if you have a carnal heart. But when the word of God has dwelt richly in you, it has affected your value system. There are some things that will happen. You'll marry a terrible person. You say, after the marriage, I did not see all these things. You, did not, you cannot see it because what your eyes were set on was something else. If the word of God has filled your heart and it has formed your value system, there is no way you are dating a person. The person will say some things. The person will do some things and you will know that this thing is contrary to what is inside me. The person will say some things, the person will do some things and you will know this thing is contrary to what? It doesn't resonate. Listen to me. This is how the hand of God helps us. God has not abandoned you and told you what a good marriage looks like. He's actually at work in you. But take it. This is the way it's at work. Brothers and sisters, fill your hearts with God's word. Fill your heart with what is good. Listen to me. Don't join them on social media to be, to be getting involved in their worldly canal fights. You are, you are on the Twitter of um, Red Pill guys and they're talking about how um, one girl, the guy spent a lot of money on her and she still broke his heart and the girl was cheating on him and the girl was cheating on him and all those kinds of things. Listen. Don't follow all those people. Don't be conformed to this world. Be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Brother and sister, this is the solution. I'm not even going to lie to you. This is what God's word says. There are some rare occasions, and I pray that we'll see more of those kinds of occasions in the body of Christ, where you will be legitimately with multiple choices. And that can, when we begin to have those kinds of things, we'll, we'll thank God for them. Whereby you'll be in a church, and two good brothers are toasting you at the same time. Do you understand that? Uh -huh. The Lord will help us in Jesus' name. You know that's a good problem to have. <laughs> if we get to that point where you have to now make a choice between what is good and what is good, or what is good and what is what, right? When you get to that point, because the word of God has spoken into your heart, God, because of the word of God has filled your heart, God will speak to your heart. We don't talk about this a lot. It's the way the Lord ministers to us, where we know what is right. When that time God comes, if that kind of time comes, what you see, you see the hand of God in certain things. God will begin to reduce your options by elimination. God will begin to work out some things. You make some things not work out. Maybe um, the person will like somebody else. You understand that? Uh -huh. Or there will be a difference in your plans. They are both good, but there are difference in your plans. When that time comes, the Lord will minister to your heart. But listen to me, 99% of the guiding that you need in this broken world that we are living in, 99% of the guiding that you need is in letting your heart be filled so that you can recognize what is good and what is bad. Finally, I will advise you on this. If you have not found a good person yet, please wait. It's worth the wait. Do you understand what I just said? No. Listen. It doesn't matter how old you are. 
If you have not found the person yet, wait. It is better, far better, to be alone. It is far better to be alone. You will have the freedom to do the will of God for your life. You will have friends and family around you, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ that will be there for you. In fact, when the time comes, if you get used to yourself, you might not even need a partner again. But you see, getting married in an unequal yoke. I saw a picture recently of what an unequal yoke looks like. You mount a cow and then mount a donkey that is shorter than it. If someone spiritually bends your neck, ah, it's like hell. It's like hell on earth. If you marry a wrong man that psychologically tortures you, if you marry a woman that psychologically tortures you, you will look back and you will see that there was, it was not worth it. Brothers and sisters, don't be like Esau. That desperation will make you to sell your birthrights because of porridge. After the wedding day and everybody comes to dance and they eat your food. That's gone, no? <laughs> There was one funny thing that one guy told me when I was doing my housemanship in Abelkota. He was, he was a Muslim guy, he was on my boy and everything. You know what he said? He was, then I was getting married. I got married immediately after my house job. I mean, I've dated for like, we've been courting for like six, 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 close to seven years. Immediately I earned money like this first year. Immediately I finished my housemanship. I just entered my wife's house. <laughs> so the guy was now advising me. He said, how is the wedding? Is it going to be big? I said, ah, no, we don't have money. My parents don't have money, so we're going to do it according to our... He said, no, do a big wedding. I said, why? He said, the reason is because if you spend money on wedding, eh, women like it. So we are spending money, they'll be happy to do the wedding and everything. And after the wedding, they'll be ashamed to leave the marriage, no matter what you do to them. Because, because they'll be thinking of how big the wedding was, how many people came. Who will they tell that they're not doing it again? You say, hey... May you not marry that type? You see what I just said about someone cooking you now? You are telling me, honey, what to do wedding? Spending money. He said, like, he loves me. He doesn't love you. He's cooking you. Church, you hear what I'm saying to you? The Lord will help us in Jesus' name. See, time has gone. Let's bow down our heads and let's pray to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your people this morning. I pray for your people this morning that your all-powerful hand, your outstretched all-powerful hand will rest upon their marriages, will rest upon their choices. Lord, I pray for your people. I pray for your people. Let everyone's marriage be exactly the type that you had in mind from the beginning. In the name of Jesus. Let everyone's marriage in this assembly, let, let it be the type that glorifies your name. Let it be the type that is pleasing to you in the name of Jesus. Lord, if there's anyone who is currently being deceived by the flesh, if there's anyone that is currently being deceived by an unreasonable and wicked person, by a deceitful person, if anyone is currently being deceived into making the right choices, if anybody is currently being pressured by family and the flesh and their material circumstances, Lord, I pray by your mighty hand that you deliver such ones in the name of Jesus. Lord, catch them and don't let them fall. 
Lord, hold them that they will not stumble. Lord, open their ears to hear your word, to save them in the name of Jesus. Father, we give you thanks. Father, we thank you because your hand is with us in all our things. Father, we give you thanks. We bless your name, Lord. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at This Excellent Church. God bless you.